Our text this morning is Luke 7, 11 through 16. If you want to turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 11 through 16. Referring to Jesus. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray that this text would be alive to our hearts. We know that your word is different than other words, other books. It's living and active. Help our hearts that can often be dull and uh, dead see the living word. Help us see the glory of Christ, Lord, that we may discern rightly concerning him. God, I pray that you would work in hearts that maybe have known about you in their minds but never trusted from their heart. In Jesus' name, amen. About uh, five years ago, uh, Laura and I and the girls uh, moved from Columbia about 19 miles away. into Aberdeen, into a neighborhood that uh, we didn't, where we didn't know anybody really. Uh, it was uh, the first time in our marriage where we lived in a city, kind of. I don't really count Columbia a city. Uh, our front yard was kind of Main Street. Our backyard was the country. That's kind of how uh, Columbia is. But uh, we moved into town. And we didn't know our neighbors very well. But I can tell you today, five years later, that Laura and I have the house keys for several of our neighbors' homes. We know the codes uh, to their garage doors. We know how to get into their homes. We know how to feed their dogs. Uh, and we know how to take packages uh, into their homes. But the first year, we didn't have any codes. We didn't have any keys. We had no access to anyone's home. And the reason for that is obvious uh, to, to you probably. You don't give your house key to someone you don't know. You have to get to know someone. You have to trust someone uh, before you're going to entrust your things with them. The things that are most valuable 
to you, you don't give to people you don't trust. And there's a couple verses in Psalm 9, and I just want you to listen to these verses and consider something with me before we dive into our text. In Psalm 9, verse 7, uh, the psalmist writes, "...but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice, and He judges the world with righteousness." He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. Listen to verse 10. And those who know Your name put their trust in You. For You alone, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek You. Who puts their trust in the Lord according to this passage? And those who know Your name put their trust in You. Now you might say, well, what does it mean to know Your name? Well, in the Hebrew, to know the Lord's name means to know Him intimately. To know Him in a way that you believe He is who He really is. You know the person. There's those who know the Lord and they're the ones who put their trust in Him. And there's those who may know the Lord in a different way, maybe only with the mind, who don't put their trust in Him. The title of the message is See Christ and Discern Rightly. I want you to know Christ the way the crowds mostly did not know Him, though they talked to Him, though they watched His works, though they saw Him doing amazing things. Pharaoh, for example, saw God do amazing things. In Exodus 5.2, after Moses had told Pharaoh what God had commanded him, that he let his people go, Moses says this. I mean, Pharaoh says this, Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh said it. I don't know Him. Therefore, I won't obey Him. And He definitely didn't put His trust in Him. At the end of Pharaoh's life, he knew something of the Lord. He knew He was powerful. He knew His kingdom was destroyed by the Lord. But he still didn't know the Lord in the way that Pharaoh trusted in Him. He didn't know the Lord that He was a stronghold for the oppressed. The charge of this sermon is this. See Christ's divinity and trust Him alone with your life. Now listen to me. Nothing is more important than your life to you. Than your soul to you. What's more valuable than your soul 
And your biggest problem in this world is the fact that your sin has brought upon you the judgment of God and the sentence of death. Everyone in this room is dying. Everyone in this room is dying. And I'm saying, see Christ's divinity and trust Him with your life. With the biggest issue you have, trust Him with it. Now you might say, why plead? Isn't this obvious? Well, evidently it's not. Because the majority of people who watched His miracles, who hung out with Him, thought many good things about Him, but didn't think the right things about Him. Didn't know Him in the way they ought to have known Him. Now look at verse 16. Go go to the end of this passage. After Jesus has already brought this widow's son back from the dead, Look at the response of the people. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited His people. Now, if you were seminary students and I was a seminary professor, a question on a test, considering this passage, might be, is this a good response by the people. Is this a positive thing according to verse 16? Is this a good way to respond to what they've just seen in Christ? And if you were a good seminary student, what you would do is you would zoom out a little bit. You would look at the context in which the passage lies to help you answer that question. Well, if you remember last week, we saw the amazing faith of a centurion. A Roman captain had faith like no one else in Israel according to Luke uh, chapter 7, verse 9. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such a faith. So we go right from that passage to this story And they make this confession. So we're trying to decide, is this a good confession or not? Well, then we look to the very next section where we see, look at verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things, these amazing miracles Jesus did to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? John the Baptist, the one who's given the ministry to prepare the way for the Lord, the one who said, there's the Lamb of God right there. He's the one. He's beginning to doubt. And he he sends messengers. And he's saying, is he the one? So not only is the faith of Israel struggling, The faith of John the Baptist is struggling. And then if you look at the next section, verse 28, uh, or in the next section in verse 28, uh, where he's talking about John the Baptist, he says, I tell you, among those born 
of woman, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Now you remember, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Tax collectors were coming knowing they needed to repent and were affirmative to John's ministry. But, verse 30, the Pharisees and the lawyers, the true religious elite of the day, rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. Remember? They come to Him and say, we want the baptism. And John calls them a brood of vipers. He said, who warned you to flee from the wrath of God? He knew their hearts weren't repentant. And he said, why do you want this baptism? They were offended and like, yeah, we don't need this baptism. We're good. But you have the people that you would expect to trust God actually not trusting God. And then you have in, in Luke 7.31 an illustration where he says, what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another, we played the flute for you, you did not dance, we sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Now the simple point there is this. He's like, what's this generation like? When you play the flute, you're supposed to dance. You know, children in the marketplace, they're playing a happy song. People are supposed to dance. But no one's dancing. You play a dirge, people are supposed to weep and no one's weeping. And Jesus is saying, people aren't responding rightly to John or to me. They're seeing the works. They're proclaiming something about Christ, but they're missing the point. And then that goes into the prostitute that comes into the dinner. Jesus gets invited into a tax collector's home or a Pharisee's home. Uh, and he's having dinner and a prostitute comes in and begins to weep at Jesus' feet and touch his feet. And the, ta- the Pharisee says, surely <laughs> this man's not a prophet. You know, most people think he's a prophet. Surely he's not or he would know who this woman was. And... Jesus responds by saying, I came in here, you didn't do anything for me. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't honor me in any way. She hasn't stopped doing this. She loves much because she's been forgiven much. This whole chapter is about missing the point with Christ. That's when you zoom back. So verse 16, I don't think is meant to be seen as a good confession. So let's zoom back in and see what we can learn from this passage. And here's, if you're wise, here's what I think your heart ought to be doing right now. You ought to be saying, if they could miss who He was when He was there with them, then I could grow up in the church. Then I could 
grow up thinking I know Him in my mind, but potentially miss who He really is. So let's look at verse 11. Soon afterward, He went to a town called Nain, and His disciples and a great crowd went with Him. Now, He's leaving Capernaum. That's where He's been. And He's going 20 miles southwest to this town. Uh, it's six miles, the, the town of Nain is six miles from where Jesus grew up. So it's in his neck of the woods. And on the other side of the mountain or the hill where Nain is, is the exact place where in 2 Kings 4, uh, 8 through 37, where Elijah raised uh, the widow's son from the dead. I don't know if you remember the story where this widow knew Elisha was a man of God. And so she added an extra room onto his house for when he would travel by, he would have a place to stay. And uh, she never had a son. And Elisha prophesied that she was going to have a son. Well, she, uh, sure enough, the next year she had a son. This son grew up. And so there's been this kind of sweet relationship between this uh, uh, this now widow and Elisha. Well, her son dies and sends for the great man of God, Elisha, the prophet. And uh, he comes and uh, he sends a messenger to have him healed. He isn't healed. He comes and he prays to God that God would heal him and God uh, gives healing to the son. So if you lived in Nain, you know the story of Elisha. <laughs> this happened right on the other side of the mountain where you live. So that's where they are. This is where this takes place. And as Jesus drew near to the gate, verse 12, to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out the only son of his mother, she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Now this is a normal uh, thing for a Jew. When they died in that culture, you would never let the body uh, go before nightfall without burying the body. Uh, if the boy dies, if, if the young man dies in the morning, the funeral is going to take place almost immediately. They're going to take him out and bury him. You, you want to wait two or three days as we would in our culture. There was no embalming in Israel. And so Jesus comes into town. This is something people would have seen before. But this is especially sad, especially for a widow in Israel. For one, the mom is a widow. Her husband has already passed away. And if you know anything about the culture of the day, is if you don't have a son in your family, you have nothing. You have nothing to carry on your family. 
So not only has a widow's son died, but it's her only son. This is especially sad. Uh, in fact, in Luke 9.37, we're told about another only son. It says, on that day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And when Israel was idolatrous in the Old Testament and God was pleading with Israel to repent, in Jeremiah 6.26, he says, O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth, roll in ashes, make mourning as for an only son, most bitter lamentation, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. When the Lord's telling Israel, weep over your sin, He says, how should you weep as one who weeps for their only son? Which tells us something about our sin. Do, do we weep over our sin against God as though we would weep for our only son who had just passed away? Amos 8.10, the prophet says a similar thing to Israel. He says, I'll turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I'll bring sackcloth on every waist and boldness on every t head. I will make it like the mourning for an only son. And the end of it will be like a bitter day. So do you get the picture? Jesus is leaving Capernaum. He's coming into Nain. There's a funeral procession coming out of the town. They would bury their dead outside of the gate of the town. And verse 13 says, and when the Lord saw her, the widow, He had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. First of all, consider what an offensive thing, what a most offensive thing to say to a widow whose only son has just passed away. And then he came up and touched the bear, which is just, it's not a coffin with a top on it, it's just like a stretcher. The body would be there laying on a board with just a cloth over top of him. Jesus came up and stopped or, or, or touched that. And the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. And fear seized them all. Can you imagine? And they glorified God saying, A, A prophet has risen among us. God has visited His people. Now for 400 years, there has not been a prophet in Israel. God has ceased to speak to Israel for 400 years. And the people of Nain, who know all about the story of Elisha, say, oh, God's visiting us again through another prophet. 
Is Jesus a prophet? Jesus is the prophet. Jesus is the prophet. This is not another Elisha. Notice Jesus didn't pray to God to raise him as Elisha did. He spoke to the boy and the boy sat up. So there's five things I think we see about Christ that if you see, you'll see Him rightly. If you see this by faith, you'll see Him rightly. First of all, see His providential timing. Do you, do you know what providence is? Here's what John MacArthur says about providence. God's superintending control over all human choices and actions and events to the effect to his are and events to affect his predetermined purposes is known as his providence unlike a miracle when god supernaturally interrupts or suspends the natural course of events his providence involves perfectly controlling natural events to infallibly bring about his purposes Given the staggering complexities involved in coordinating even relatively simple events, God's providence in some ways is even more awe-inspiring than the miracles He performs. There is no accidents with God. Providence was always the case in Jesus' life. There was times where the crowds wanted to kill Him, but the Scripture says His time had not come, so He slipped through their midst. Providence, the timing, was not the time for Him to die. Therefore, He didn't die in that moment. Or when He says, when the Scripture says He had to go through Samaria, when the shorter way is to go around Samaria, Jesus says He had to go to Samaria. Why? Because there was a woman at the well that He had to meet. When Jesus left on this day-long journey, the boy was still alive. But when He walked into the village, the boy was now dead and they were just leaving that town. See the providential timing of Christ as He walks into this village. Proverbs 6 16.9 says this, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You and I plan, but the Lord determines our steps, the Scripture teaches. See His providential timing. You ever question God's timing in your life? You ever think things happen just at the wrong time? Well, if you love the Lord and you're a Christian, the promise to you is, is that all things work together for your good. So that on your worst day, you can know, though I may wish this day is go would go different, God's timing in my life is perfect to conform me into the image of Christ. That's the promise. The good God promises for us 
is that we would be conformed into His image. Second, we see His compassion in verses 13 and verse 15. Look at verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Now, is this woman a sinful woman? Yes. Like every other person on the face of the earth, she too is fallen. But when the Lord sees her suffering, compassion comes out of Him. Compassion comes out of Christ. And this is the theme we see all through the Old Testament and all through the New. Uh, John MacArthur says one of the biggest misconceptions of the Bible is that the Old Testament is all about God's wrath and the New Testament is all about God's mercy, where in fact the Old Testament often talks all sorts about God's patience and comfort and mercy and long-suffering He has for His people. And Jesus often talks a lot about judgment and hell. But he also talks about, it talks about his compassion. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And Jesus is the perfect representation of his Father. Jesus is God. In the Old Testament, we hear things like this Jeremiah 9.23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches. Okay, so what are we going to boast in? But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows Me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. If you want to boast in something, boast in knowing who God is. That He's a merciful God who, yes, is a just God. Remember Exodus 34.6 as He reveals Himself to Moses. Moses wants to know who God is. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, I the Lord, a God merciful. The word is rahum. It can be translated compassionate. The God of compassion. The God who's merciful. The God of sympathy. I am the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression in sin. In Nehemiah 9.17, speaking of God, it says, they refused to obey. Though Israel refused to obey, they were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. They stiffened their neck. They appointed a leader and returned to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Even though they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. In your great mercy, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. This is the Old Testament pointing out 
about this God who when His people make a golden calf and say, this is what brought you out of Egypt. This is the one that brought you through the sea. Even that God had patience with that group of people. He's a God of compassion. And so it's no wonder when Paul speaks of Christ in Hebrews 2.17, or not Paul, but the writer of Hebrews, he says, therefore, He being Christ had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus had to take on human flesh, become a man, because a man is sinned and a man must die. And because He's a merciful high priest, He did it. In fact, one of the sweetest passages in the Scripture, Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then draw near to God are near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When you sin greatly, what you naturally do is you run from God because you feel guilt. But if you knew who God was, if you knew who He was, you would put your trust in Him. You would come running to the God of mercy and grace, you would know that He knows you're weak. That's why He took on flesh and died for you so that you would come to Him. And all throughout the Gospels, Matthew 9.35, we read about Jesus. Jesus went through all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when He saw the crowds, He had compassion on them for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The teachers, the priests, the religious teachers of their day that were supposed to be caring for the sheep just used the sheep, used the widows, oppressed them. And Jesus looked at them as lost sheep, and He had compassion on them. Matthew 14, 14, when He went ashore, He saw a great crowd and He had compassion on them and He healed their sick. Matthew 20, 31, when the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but He cried out all the more. These are two blind guys, the outcast of society. Everyone thinks they're blind because they're more sinful than everyone else. That was the belief in the day of Christ that if you were sick, you were more sinful. So these two outcasts, Jesus is coming. All the important people are ready to see Jesus. These two blind men are crying out, have mercy on us, have mercy on us. And everyone's looking at them, telling them to shut up. Verse 32 says, and, and stopping, Jesus called to them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed Him. And I wonder if you know that Jesus. What Jesus do you know? Do you know the Jesus who knows you're weak? Who knows you're sinful, therefore has came and taken your place? Or do you know a Jesus that when you sin, you stay away from church? You stay away 
from the Bible and you say in your mind, I got to clean myself up first because that Jesus won't receive me until I get my act together. Do you know that God is a God of mercy and compassion? That's why in love, He gave His only begotten Son. His only Son. You want to know how much God loves you? He gave His only Son. He shows mercy to sinners. And Jesus is showing His mercy in this passage. And we see His authority. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. But you would think if you come up and you tell a widow not to weep, you expect a fight to break out. But when He touches that stretcher, the bearers stop. There was something about Christ that carried an authority where people knew He was different. They stopped. And, I, and then we see His life-giving words. All throughout the Scripture, we read about God's life-giving words. In, in John 1.3, we read, all things were made through Him, being Christ. Without Him was not anything made. How did God make the world? He spoke. And there was life. Psalm 33.6 says this, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made. And by the breath of His mouth, all of their hosts. If you want to know how powerful God is, God speaks the words and the billions of galaxies spring into existence. And in this sermon, I'm pleading with you to trust God. The One who spoke life into existence with your life. You're going to die. I'm going to die. And yet the One who spoke the universe into existence is here in front of them speaking life when there is no life. In Psalm 115, the psalmist is mocking the idols of, of, the, of the lands around them. He's saying they have eyes, but they cannot see. You know, a little golden idol with eyes on it. It can't see. It has a mouth. It can't talk. In fact, they have to carry these heavy idols around. They're a burden for the people. And he says, those who trust in them become like them. The more you go to your idols rather than to God, the more dead you become. But those who trust in the Lord, life starts to come out of your mouth. Worship, the thing you're created for, starts to come out of your mouth. And even here, we will see in a moment that as Jesus speaks life into them, the boy speaks, and then they begin to speak, although they're still missing who He really is, it seems. Um, in John 5.24, in speaking of Jesus who has the words of life, here's what Jesus says. So, in this passage, we see Him speak life into the boy. But listen to these words. And you need to hear these because these are for us. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My Word 
and believes in Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. That's the most shocking statement in the world. Sinners do not come into judgment if they believe in Jesus. Eternal punishment in hell does not have to be for sinners. But if you trust in Jesus, eternal life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Listen, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He's granted the Son also to have life in Himself and He has given Him authority to execute judgment because... He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Every graveside service I do, I say, At the voice of Christ when He returns, just as this boy when he heard the voice of Christ came alive, every tomb will open up. Every person who's died at sea in a fire, their body is going to come alive for all eternity. One unto a resurrection unto death. The body that will never ultimately perish away but suffer eternal death apart from the presence of God in hell and those who have the resurrection unto life. See, you don't want to trust in a mere prophet. You need to discern the difference between Elisha and Jesus. You need to know the difference between a good teacher who teaches good moral principles and the one who says live and you live. They think, and now we're to point five, they see the people's flawed, or here we see the people's flawed confession of Christ. They think He's a prophet. They don't realize that He didn't pray to God to have the body raised. He spoke in the body raised. They don't realize that He's God. Jesus was popular. A silly question for people in Jesus' day is, do you believe in Jesus? Because everyone would say, yeah. He's right there. He's over there. or He's in that town yesterday. Or He's over here and He did this and He did that. Even the Pharisees believed in Jesus. They couldn't even deny His miracles. They had to say that He did the miracles by the power of Satan. It's a silly question to ask people if they believe in Jesus. The question I want to know from people is what Jesus do you believe in? Because Jesus said, in the end, there's going to be many who come in My name And don't believe them. There's many churches who open their Bible and talk about Jesus, but they represent a different Jesus that's in the Bible. He's a Jesus of 
political correctness. He's a Jesus of, he's a good teacher to show us a better way to live. He's not a Jesus who will come back with blood dripping from his robe, ready to tread the wine press of the wrath of God for those who've rejected him. That's a little too distasteful for our culture. What Jesus are you trusting in? Are you trusting in the Jesus who can bring life? I just want to take you through a few passages in John. Because most people got the wrong Jesus. What a frustrating thing to believe in Jesus your whole life, but He's the wrong one. He's not the Christ of the Bible. He's the Christ of, yeah, it's a good thing to go to church and be a good person. John 1.17 says this, Before I read that, I do want to say this. Most religions believe in Jesus. Uh, MacArthur points out that Islam believes Jesus is what? A prophet. He's a prophet. That's what, that's what the people of name believe. Jesus is a prophet who in fact did not die on the cross. That's what Islam believes. The Mormons believe that Jesus is a created being rather than being the eternal Son of God. And He's the spirit brother of Satan. To the Jehovah's Witnesses, He is merely Michael the archangel incarnate. He's a blasphemous... Uh, our, to others, He's the blasphemous rock of musicals that portray Him as a countercultural hero but just a man. Pseudo-scholars reinvent him as a cynical philosopher, a social critic, political correct sage, liberator of the press, and a misguided martyr. The list of errant views goes on in infinite ways, MacArthur says. Close quote. There's a lot of Jesuses. But do you know the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus who is God, John 1.17 says this, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. You want to know what that means? That means Jesus is God. No one has ever seen God. But the only God who is at the Father's side, He's made the Father known. That's God. That's the God of the Scriptures. Jesus, second person of the Trinity, is God. John 5.16 And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. He was doing miracles on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now and I am working. That's what the Sabbath is about. Don't work for your own salvation. God works for you. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal to God. So Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe Jesus is God. And I've had them stand on my doorstep and I asked them, do you believe Jesus is God? And they said, we believe He's the Son of God. And I'm like, well... <laughs> You're right, He is the Son of God, but did you know the people in Jesus' day 
the Jews, when they heard that, they knew that in claiming to be the Son of God, He was making Himself equal to God. Why do you miss that? He's the God who is at the Father's side and He makes the Father known. No one else knows God. And then John 8.19, they said to Him, therefore, where is your Father? Because Jesus keeps talking about His Father. Jesus answered, you know neither Me nor My Father. If you knew Me, you would know My Father also. These words He spoke in the treasury as He taught in the temple, but no one arrested Him because His hour is not yet come. There's providence. So He said to them again, I'm going away and you'll seek Me and you will die in your sins. Ooh, the religious leaders don't like that. Where I am going, you cannot come. The Jews said, will He kill Himself? Since He says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. They knew that was blasphemy in their minds. Because unless you know I am He, the God of the Old Testament, what's His name? I am. He's saying your sins aren't going to be forgiven unless you know that I am divine. Unless you know I'm the promised Messiah. The Son of God. Your sins will not be forgiven. John 10.30 says, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone Him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone Me? The Jews answered Him, it is not for a good work we're going to stone you. You are but for blasphemy because you being a man, make yourself God. They knew what Jesus was saying. And in John 14.6, Jesus said to them, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. For from now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. Philip, one of His disciples, said to Him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know Me, Philip? Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in Me and the words that I say to you? I do not speak on My own authority, but the Father who dwells in Me does His works. Believe in Me that I am in the Father and the Father is in Me or else believe on account of the works themselves. These people should have seen this man speak life into a dead body and say, only God can do that. All throughout the Old Testament, the prophets raised the dead how? Through the power of God. Jesus raises the dead and they glorify God saying, God has visited us, but they just view Him as another prophet. I hope that your confession is like that of Martha that said, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Do you believe this? Here's what Martha says. 
She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe You are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Amen. She never needs to fear death. Or how about Peter? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God supernaturally gave Peter eyes to see who he really was. And Thomas answered him. Once doubting Thomas saw the nails after he had died and been resurrected, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And they worshiped Jesus. And Jesus did not stop them because He is God. Do you know Christ that way? Because if you know your biggest problem that you're on your way to death and you're even dying right now, then you're going to cling to the only One who has the keys to death. He's died. He's conquered the grave. And He said, anyone who trusts in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. Paul tells us that he's the first fruits of those raised from the dead. As surely as Christ is raised from the dead, we also, the second fruits coming after Him, will raise from the dead. All of you, I'm sure, know Jesus. But do you know Jesus, the Lord, the Son of God, God Himself? Father, I pray that all of us would build our life on the only safe place to build it, and that's on Jesus Christ. That we would trust in Him. We wouldn't trust in our good works, but we would trust in what He did for us and paying the price for our sins and promising not only will we not enter into judgment, but we will be raised from the dead and live forever with You. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.